I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store Rakuten Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. While they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. Welcome to a special edition of Kobo in Conversation. In this episode, we're changing things up a bit. Usually, we talk to authors one-on-one, but with the holidays around the corner, we wanted to provide you with a resource, with a directory of gift options for people that are hard to buy for, for people that you're not sure what to buy for, but for people who love books or love reading or love ideas. And... Rather than turn to you know, the regular panel of experts, uh, we have opened the doors wide inside Kobo, and uh, I put out an appeal for uh, gift-giving recommendations that went out to the entire company a couple of days ago, and what you're going to hear is the result of that. So we have people that have come in from marketing, from uh, software development, from product management. We've got interns. We've got executives. Uh, It's really fantastic to see, first of all, just how many book lovers are inside this company, how many people, regardless of what they're doing in their everyday life, have no problem dropping their tools and coming in to talk about a book they love. And um, that really... Everyone has opinions on books, and you don't have to be a professional bookseller. You don't have to be a publisher. Really, everyone has that book that they want people to find out about, that they want people to read, that they're pressing into people's hands at every opportunity. So I'm especially happy that we've been able to unlock this and look forward to uh, you hearing some of these recommendations with me. Enjoy. So my name is Christina Mendez. I am a CRM marketing manager here at Kobo, and I take care of all of our email marketing and also all of the marketing we do for like single title books. And what's the book that you think that people need to either give to someone else or to buy for themselves this holiday season? The book that I think people either definitely, if you like romance, you should absolutely read it. Or if you know anyone who does, you should pick it up and the sequels that follow because it's romance. So of course it's a series is Act Like It by Lucy Parker. Someone introduced me to this book because they're like, oh, it's a romance book, but also it takes place on the London West End, and they're two theater actors. And I heard that, and I was like, oh, well, the only thing I love more than books is, like, plays and musicals, so absolutely. And also, they're two very sarcastic people, so most of the book is them just, like, trading insults a little bit back and forth. And I was like, oh, that's everything that I want, just two people being kind of salty at each other for, like, a solid 200 pages. Excellent. So then it sounds like this would work for... Someone who loves romance, yep. for someone who loves theater, mm-hmm. for someone who's looking for that sort of Tracy Hepburn sort of <laughs> yeah. like back and forth thing. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. If you like, you know, protagonists that have a little bit of bite and they're not just like immediately in love with each other, it's perfect. It also has the number, like the number one and number two best romance tropes where they have to fake date. Because one of them has a little bit of a bad reputation and the other one has a really good one. So in order to make him seem better, they have to fake date for a little while. And you're like, well, that's the best. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all had to do that. Yeah, I don't know about you, but constantly (laughs) I'm like having to enter fake marriages uh, and finding the love of my life because of them. So it's excellent. 
And then the number two best romance trope, which is where they're kind of enemies a little bit at first, and then they become friends, and then friends turns into love, as it always does, of course. So it's just excellent the whole way through. You get everything that you want out of a romance book, but also one that is actually really well-written and really interesting, so it kind of keeps you in it the whole time you're reading it. And you say this is a series, so with it, without it giving away anything that comes mm-hmm. afterwards... From that first one, there's still enough to go on that it just builds and progresses from yeah, there. Yeah, it does that, I think, sort of great, like, romance universe where the first book is one couple and you meet a couple of side characters and in the next book you find out that they find a way to get together and then they have a third book and that one comes out. And there's actually even a fourth book coming out for it soon called The Austin Playbook. So I think if you like romance, it's perfect to have anything with a series because a single romance book is like watching a single episode of a television show. So you can get through that a little bit too quickly. So like binge it, get through all three, and that's like a nice like weekend day. For people who are romance readers, what's a, who's another author that would you know, kind of be a bridge to this author? Or if you love this, you'll also love this kind of pairing. I think her name is Elizabeth Hoyt. She writes the Maiden Lane series. Mm-hmm. And I think if you like, again, where there's sort of an overarching universe of characters and each book is dedicated to a different one, you'll really like this series as well because you can kind of, as you go through, you're like, oh, that's the person who's going to be the main character in the next book, which I think you can read from the Maiden Lane series. So I think if you like um, Elizabeth Hoyt, who's generally pretty popular, you're going to like Lucy Parker quite a bit too. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Shanice Jones. I'm a merchandising intern at Kobo. And the book I would love to recommend is If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio. It takes place at this prestigious literary college in a Shakespeare program. And it follows these group of college kids who get really invested into their actual plays. And they all kind of follow a different role that the players in the in the play would follow. So there's a hero, there's a tyrant, there's the extra, and they all kind of follow these characteristics. And so the book opens 10 years later in the future after the students have been in school, and one of the students is just being released from jail. And so the cop who was in charge of the case, and he's retired now, approaches him and says, look, I know that you didn't do whatever it was that you got put in jail for. I'm retired. I'm not going to arrest you again. I'm not involved. Tell me what actually happened. And so the story is essentially what happens. And it goes on from there. Mm-hmm. And so would you consider this literary fiction? Is that sort of the, the category that we're working in? I think or is it a mystery? Or? It's a great blend of those kind of things. Like it has this whole mystery aspect because Oliver, the main character, is retelling what exactly happened and why he ended up in jail and why necessarily he doesn't actually belong. He didn't have to go Mm -hmm. to jail in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also follows this beautiful story of these group of friends together, and it really does fall into that literary fiction category as well. And it has a lot of Shakespeare woven into it, too. And he's he's really a character in the story. Yeah, there's a lot of the actual plays that they're doing, the Shakespeare plays that they do. And he's a character himself. Like, it's beautiful. That's great. And so if you were, if you were giving this book to someone, what's another book that they would like that would make you go, yeah, this is going to be the perfect thing for them? It gets a lot of comparisons to The Secret History by Don Tart, obviously because it follows that whole um, college setting. There's kind of a, a murder mystery aspect around it as well. Mm-hmm. So that one always gets comparisons to it. And I think it's a really good crossover story as well. So if you're not someone who is typically into literary fiction, like I'm not... I'm someone who reads more genre fiction. It works really well as kind of a, a gateway to more, I wouldn't say not difficult prose, but more... But to literary work that sits yeah, exactly. outside of genre. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
I am Nastra Ann Bishoban, VP of Global Technology Delivery at Kobo, and delighted to share one of the titles that uh, I enjoyed reading, and hopefully our audience will enjoy reading it too. The book I wanted to introduce is The Good Earth Trilogy, and it combines of three different books. The first one is The Good Earth, second one is Sons, the third one is A House Divided. This trilogy was written in the 1930s. Pearl S. Buck won the Pulitzer Prize for it. What to you makes this book continue to be something that people want to read? The fact that this book is a Pulitzer Prize winner and the fact that uh, Pearl Bach is a Nobel Prize winner herself has a very, very little testament to the beauty of her explaining the metaphor of humans' feeling, the way that good and bad in humans actually can fight with each other, and uh, touching every tree aspect of the human, of being doing and having the beautiful triangle between these three and it tickles in every sense of your being and after that it actually pushes the boundaries after arousing your curiosity to how you can combine this tree feeling together it makes your day-to-day life um, uh, very insignificant when you go through all of this detail and problem that people went through the magic that she has in storytelling beautifully combining those words with metaphor and touching your core is phenomenal. And so if you're looking at giving this gift to someone, who's the kind of reader who would embrace this book? I would say everyone should read her. This is um, mandatory this reading. Is, everyone well, should read if this. If you're asking me, everyone sure. should read her. <laughs> perfectly valid. <laughs> she, she has something for every single type of readers. Mm-hmm. She has romance. She has uh, greed and uh, happiness and non-happiness. She has the interaction between parents and kids. She has leadership in war. The book has been, you know, touching everything that a human might actually encounter through their life. This is set in China. Set in um, China. And is, follows a family through, uh, through history. Is it an intimate story or is it a sweeping historical story? It is both, actually. It starts with very intimate detail of what Wang Lu, the main character, is going through, explains the problem that he is having, takes us through the famine that he and his family went through, that a leaf of tea would have been the most precious thing that a person would have possessed, and then takes you from hard work and resiliency towards what he becomes, one of the most prominent kind of person in his city that everyone would have come to him for borrowing money and and taking advice. So it takes you ups and down and then combines that with all the positive and negative things that this problem will bring with themselves. Nestor, thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Hopefully our audience will (laughs) enjoy it. My name is Peter Swinkels. Uh, I work as Executive Vice President, Publisher Relations and Content for Kobo. And the book I'm going to talk about is The Marrow Thieves by Sherry Damaline. Tell me about this book. So The Marrow Thieves is really a coming-of-age story about a boy called Frenchie who lives in a world that is damaged beyond repair as a result from global warming. And millions of people have died, communities have fallen apart, 
and the years of suffering have led people to be unable to dream, except for the indigenous peoples of North America, who carry dreams and webs woven into their bone marrow. Now, our main character, Frenchie, is a teenage boy. He lives a nomadic life in a group of eight, and together they try to really to survive this harsh environment. They're also on the run for the government recruiters who capture Inuit, Matisse, and First Nations people to work for them in marrow harvesting factories. And while this threat is always present, Frenchie and the girl called Rosie try to make sense of their experience of first love and the budding romance. And so would you characterize this as a work of literary fiction? Is it speculative science fiction? Is it a thriller? How would you place it? It's a bit of everything. It's published as a dystopian YA, and, and mm-hmm. it is in many ways, but it, it's much more than that because at the heart, really, of storytelling, this group of people that, that lives in this, live in this, this terrible uh, environment and have suffered for years, tell each other stories, stories of their lives, of their suffering, how they lost their communities, how they lost their, li- their, their loved ones. But they also hang, hang together, and the community hangs together from stories. There is also a mother figure in the, in the group that, that really tells them the story of, of their people, the history. And she gives them a kind of, you know, to put it heavily, an, an identity. And she creates their history but by giving them their history. So it's while it digs into some really serious social issues, and it's a, obviously a warning against uh, global warming, it is also a, a heartfelt kind of a beautiful story about what it means to be human and, and how you stick together in a, in a community and ultimately a very uplifting and encouraging story. If you were looking at buying this as a gift, who's the kind of person who would like this as a book to receive at the holidays? So what's so great about this, this audiobook, it's an audiobook production by the Salt Pepper Theatre. So because of the storytelling, and you know, there's nothing better than listen to it, because Sherry Damelina is a fantastic writer. She writes visually, she writes very telling. Um, and to, you know, in, in the production by the Salt Pepper Theatre, great actors, some great music, it really, really comes to life. So there's, I think it is, that's why it's such a perfect audiobook. It is for all ages, it's a YA book, but it's one of those YA books, YA books that I suspect will actually have a long, long life with adults, because it's, it's such a fantastic reading experience. Are there other authors who are similar that you could use if you were kind of looking for a guide to see who else might like this? If you push me to compare it, right, because it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. a pretty unique writer and a pretty unique book, but it's really the Hunger Games meet Eden Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Hello, my name is Marina. I was very recently the KWL author engagement intern, just recently changed over to publisher operations Yay. coordinator with KWL, Couple Writing Life. Very excited. Uh, and I'm here to talk about some books today. Tell me about the book that you'd like to recommend. Okay, so I have a couple. I hope that's okay. But the first one yes. that I absolutely want to talk about is uh, I'm Afraid of Men by Vivek Shreya. I have had this book given to me by three different people. The agent who repped it, yes. the you know, the publisher who published it, yeah. and then you know, some other you know, <laughs> sort of random person have all put this book in my hands, which is great in that I now have three copies. Yeah. So tell me why I should read this book. I absolutely love this book because it put into perspective in very clear terms and very uh, clear examples what it means to be a trans woman of color in Canada, but in the world today. Vivek really paints a picture of what it is like to do common daily things that we all go about in our days and we do it and we don't think about it, but things that when she goes about her day, she has to stop and really reevaluate everything that she's doing, uh, has to make decisions basically concerning her own safety. 
day to day. And I thought it was beautifully written. She's very empathetic. She's very knowledgeable as well. She uh, teaches, I believe it's a, in the University of Calgary. I thought it was a beautiful book. And it's a very short read as well. It's something that anyone can pick up and read in, within a couple of hours. I think the tagline of the book, it's for him, for her, for they, for everyone. And I absolutely agree with that. Anyone can get something from it. And if you were going to give this to someone, is there a particular person that you know would really you know, seize onto it? Definitely that person that maybe might be a little bit more political savvy, maybe someone that's a little bit more aware of what's happening in the world right now will definitely appreciate it. That's definitely a sure gift for them. But I don't think that there's any harm in giving it to someone that maybe is not aware. It might be an opportunity for growth. So is this a book that could open up someone's eyes to the issues that a trans person would deal with in daily life? Absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. Okay, so that was book number one. (laughs) What's book number two? The book number two will be a very quick uh, suggestion if anyone has read already, I'm still reading Becoming by Michelle Obama. If you're looking for something that leans into the political aspect of things, if you're missing the Obamas, definitely I would recommend uh, From the Corner of the Oval. We're by... all missing the Obamas. I know. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, From the Corner of the Oval by Beck Dory Stein. She basically got her job as a stenographer in the White House after finding a job posting for it on Craigslist. And she became the stenographer following Obama throughout, I believe she started two years after he was already in office. So she was with him for about six years and it tells the tale of her time there what it was like to work with that big team but also it almost feels a little bit almost like I want to say sex in the city west wing a little bit of a drama here and there so it has a little bit of everything that we love but you get to see the behind the scenes within the Obama administration and so it sounds like rather than the big political books of the season on one side or the big biographies like Michelle Obama's that's come out This feels like a more intimate portrait of life inside the Oval Office. Yes, absolutely. And you do see a lot of the political aspects of it. She does get into detail with a lot of the things that are happening, but it definitely does have a little bit of that hint. It almost feels like fiction at times. Fantastic. Thank you so much. You're welcome. My name is Nathan Maharaj. I am Senior Director of Merchandising here at Kobo, and the book I'm recommending is Washington Black by Essie Adujan. And it's not just me recommending it. It won the Giller Prize in Toronto. It's Canada's most prestigious literary award, and it's so well-deserved. This is a book with big heart, with a propulsive plot. It's a story of a runaway slave, but it's not historical fiction that that invites you to study it for for fact and history. This is really sort of reality adjacent. There's fabulousness. There is, well, I guess the best way to characterize it is his escape is by hot air balloon. And it's hot air balloon before we know what to call it. So the man who is the brother of his master, who springs him into freedom, calls it a cloud cutter because it's a prototype. There are no hot air balloons at this point in history. So it's that kind of a story. It is as horrific as anything anywhere near slavery should be, but it has this element of the fabulousness. And there is it's not just an escape from, but Washington Black, the 11-year-old boy who grows up through the, the novel, uh, he's escaping to something. He's very talented. He's, he's uh, apparently a very gifted nature illustrator. And this is the talent that he, that he trades on that, that takes him into this, this new life and, and brings him 
love and fortune, but also puts him at great risk of being found by those who would who would drag him back into sh- his shackles. And this is as his second win for the Giller Prize. It's her second win. She is now in the unprecedented position of having most of her books having won the Giller Prize. <laughs> uh, she has three novels to her name. A two with major publishers and so far no movie adaptation. That's all that's missing from her crown. And it does seem like with this book especially, there is a cinematic quality to it. You get these amazing descriptions of, you know, as you say, the hot air balloons and that period of Victorian England. And it's uh, yeah. it, it's incredible. There's there's Arctic landscapes. There's glorious beaches and tide pools at the like dawn of modern marine biology. If you can imagine what that's like when someone decides to actually illustrate and catalog the muck. There's there's deep sea diving with with it has with, everything. <laughs> it's got it's got everything. It is such a page turner. It is such an easy book to recommend. And so, who should receive this book if you were if you were looking at this as a gift giving resource? I would give this to anybody who um, you'd start with anybody who enjoys literary culture. So it's the must read book of the season, mm-hmm. full stop. But also anybody who just wants a ripping good tale because it is a ripping good tale. I would say anybody who has even come anywhere close to Oprah's book club is going to be into this. This is this is a book that's going to appeal to the casual literary reader as well. But really, it's just hard to not recommend this to someone who enjoys fiction because this is what this is what books do when they're telling great stories. Excellent. And so, give us title and author one more time. It's Washington Black by Essie Adujan. Excellent. Thank you so much. My name's Tara Kremen, and I'm the author experience manager for Kobo Writing Life at Kobo. The book I'd like to recommend is David Gochran's Let's Get Digital, How to Self-Publish and Why You Should. And so you are on the front lines of our self-publishing and independent publishing platform. So you have people coming to you all the time saying, I am interested in becoming a, you know, an author. How do I do it? How does this book help? This book basically outlines everything, every step from the very beginning to the sort of, I mean, I guess there's no real end, but the whole process of self-publishing. Um, it's the most comprehensive guide, and it kind of like is one of among one of the best resources for indie authors out there. What are some of the things that people you know, should be knowing when they just start this journey of deciding to publish their own book? Well, it can be quite overwhelming to begin with because you're a writer and you just want to write. So it can be down to sort of editing your book, where to find a good editor, a cover designer, different formatting, what files go to what places, um, simple things like that. And then it gets more detailed into like your marketing structure and how you would release your book, what has kind of worked for David Gochran and what he thinks will work for other people. This is the third edition. So he's been updating it regularly when there's been new features because the indie publishing community is constantly changing. So he's just updated this one that was released this year. So it includes like all of the latest info. And in your engagement with authors, have you run into people who have encountered this book and have found it really helpful? Oh, yeah, yeah. Everyone is, they're, they're kind of like evangelists for the book themselves. Like, they really recommend it. He has a following as a, yeah. in, in the self-publishing community. Yeah, and he sends um, these great newsletters out with um, tips. I think that's originally how this book began, that he was just blogging about his self-pub experience, and then somebody asked him, like, can you put it in a PDF? And he's like, well, that sounds like a book, so just make this book to do it. So he has this great weekly um, newsletter that um, people are really engaged in as well. One of the reasons that a book like this is so important is that, as you say, a lot of people get very focused on the writing, of getting the novel out. But to use a platform like Kobo Writing Life, 
you have to you, you become a publisher of one. You are doing all of the things that a publisher has to do. And so it sounds like this book helps take you through all of those different aspects of what it means to actually get your book into readers' hands. Yeah, for sure, because David has a background in publishing too, so um, his writing's really accessible and can break it down, because it can be quite intimidating for a writer to have to now suddenly think of themselves as a publisher and everything that is entailed in that. So this book's really, really helpful of kind of like giving details on every aspect that they need to know about. Thank you so much. Hi, uh, my name is Simon Colton. I'm a content sales manager here at Kobo. So I uh, do analysis and understanding and research into all of our sales trends. The book I'd like to recommend is Neuromancer by William Gibson. So this is the classic definitive cyberpunk title who kind of began the genre. What is it about this book that appeals to you? I love this book because, I, firstly, I think it's it's an iconic work of sort of science fiction, but also of, of late 20th century literature. But also, I think it's just a lot of fun. And I think there aren't too many books that start a new genre and are just a lot of fun to read. As a book that's rooted in technology, um, that's sort of giving people their first views of what cyberspace is or could be, has it aged well? It's been like, it's been what 20 years since it, yeah, since it was published possibly even more than that i don't know i think it, i think it has and that's one of the interesting things about it like i was I, i'm rereading one of uh, gibson's other books at the moment and the thing that struck me is you know the it has this famous opening line the sky was the color of television tuned to a dead channel and you think about it now there's no such thing as a dead channel on a television anymore but everyone kind of knows what that means and it's 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 aged well in the sense that it, it was never gimmicky. It was never kind of, you know, you do read some sci-fi where there's sort of a bit of a gimmick or there's, there's ideas that pass in and out of, out of trend. But I think it's aged really, really well because it was, it was already aged, if that makes sense. Like, the technology you see in the book is already old, and that was something that he did that was novel, sort of take these ideas that science fiction authors had always been kind of enchanted by in the past and make them mundane and everyday. And that was kind of interesting, I think. Who should read this book now? I think it's a great book for people who think that they don't like science fiction. And I think it's a great book for people who think that they don't like literary fiction from either side of, you know, this genre divide that people like to put up. I think it's I think Gibson is one of the best science fiction authors, if you want to classify him that way, breaking down those kind of barriers. And so I think if you happen to read, you know, nothing but Frederick Pohl and Isaac Asimov and whoever, then, you know, maybe maybe branch out and, and try something that's a little closer to, to literary. It, it's also very good for crime readers as well, right? Because there's this real kind of noir element to it that really is one of the propulsive elements of the story. So, I don't know, I'd say anyone who likes science fiction, crime, general literary fiction, or just wants to try something totally. And what's great about William Gibson is he tends to work in these groups of three in some ways the Neuromancer, Count Zero, and Mona Lisa Overdrive first trilogy are the most in the future, and he's been getting closer and closer to present day yeah. ever since. Yeah. So you can kind of pick how speculative, how science fiction-y you want to be yep. and work your way forward or backward accordingly. Yeah, and he's written some some great books recently that are sort of almost set in the present day. Like, I haven't read his most recent one, The Peripheral, but I'm, I'm told it's, it's quite close to the present day and he just has a very interesting writing style so if if you're somebody who reads for style then and you don't really care about the plot it's it's still a worthwhile endeavor simon thank you so much thanks 
My name is uh, Brody Cahill, and uh, I'm one of the product leads at Kobo. And uh, my job is to understand what problems our customers have and uh, what are the solutions that we need to build to solve for those problems. So the book I'm going to recommend um, actually came from our UX lead uh, at Kobo, and uh, the book is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products by uh, Nir Eyal. This is a book that is near and dear to your heart. You've taken this on as a project. I have. I have. It's a bit of a, uh, just a kind of a fascinating book because I've always kind of, you know, thought about, you know, how can I solve problems and how can you do it in a way that you can communicate those problems? Um, so being my job is to solve for problems, my problem was to figure out how to understand what problems are. So, and it's amazing. There's people out there whose jobs are exactly that. They, they teach this sort of thing. Amir Eyal is a professor at Stanford University. He's like one of the, like um, very well-known guys in Silicon Valley. He's worked with Facebook, uh, Instagram, many companies. And uh, his job is to help companies understand that using products is to solve for problems. So we humans uh, have needs and wants and products help solve for those. And to make sure that your products are actually solving for real problems. And that's why I've been, um, you know, bothering you to, uh, to to sync up with it, to read about it because <laughs> yeah. it is, it's so fun. Like it's, it's, it's fascinating because you read this book and you realize that there's so many elements that are, you just look at products now in a very different way. And you're like, oh, I see how, why they're positioning it that way. So pull a couple of insights from the book for me. What's a thing that you've learned from that, that you've pulled into your everyday work? So there's a framework. It kind of has like a four-part framework. But the one that I think is most interesting about it at all is this idea around variable rewards. So this goes back to like human psychology and like how we've evolved mm-hmm. as humans and, and what we seek for as humans. And his, his argument is that essentially variable rewards are exactly that. It's a variable thing that humans seek. And it's, that's the variability of that is also important because humans look for variability to determine um, changes in, in nature and their environment. And the uh, his argument is that uh, reward systems are intrinsic. They're actually built into our human needs and our motivations. That's actually built off of another concept of uh, another professor by the name of B.J. Fogg, who um, kind of coined the the term of creating motivation. And how do you create behavior through motivation? Mm-hmm. His argument is the variable reward system are the things like the social rewards that we seek. That's the need to be accepted and the need to, to exist. And that goes back to like tribal days of like being mm-hmm. in bands. And if you're um, removed from the band, and you would be on your own to be eaten by lions. And the other areas are um, around, he calls them rewards of the self, which is your need to self-improve, to evolve. And that's built into our DNA. And also the uh, third one is the rewards of the hunt, which is our need to uh, seek and uh, our need to uh, find things. And that started with food and shelter. And now it's turned into things like expensive clothing and, Mm -hmm. and basically anything. So the idea around that is that system exists in all products. And if you look closely enough, you will see that products are solving for one of those three things or a combination of them for that, for that matter. If we look at this book as a tool, as something that's going to help you get better as you're designing products, who should be reading this book? Anyone in the product life cycle, I think, would be interested in it. And the thing is, it's, it, you know, I'm a product manager, um, but UX would benefit from it. Anyone in the user experience environment, anyone in marketing would benefit from it because it's really about thought process and everyone in the company has a role in the thought process to understand how to advocate to build good products mm-hmm. because products have to have needs to be useful. Otherwise, they don't get used. And that's where companies make many mistakes is they build something where there's not a need and then they try to overserve for that and force it into the market. There's lots of examples of, of those. And so in a lot of ways, what this book is talking about are the behavioral hooks that that don't just allow people to bring products into their lives, but 
get them embedded into people's lives in a place where they are habitual, yeah. you know, on one end of the spectrum or compulsive on the other yeah. because they're hitting one or more of these these centers of motivation that people yeah. have. Yeah, that's exactly right. And how important it is to understand how dangerous that can be. You know, the flip side of that is the dangers of products as they do get used and become habitual is companies have a responsibility to understand what role they play in and making sure it's healthy. Um, we're very fortunate that we're in a business where I would say if you're reading a lot, it's a very healthy thing. But if you're in the casino business or somewhere else <laughs> where your products can be um, turned you know, the other way, you have to really be aware socially of the consequences of understanding human behavior really, really, really well and, and serving for that to solve for, for certain needs. And so one more time, give us the, the name of the book and the author. Yeah, the book is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and it's by Nir Eyal. Brody, thanks so much. No problem. Thanks, you. Hey, my name is Mike McHugh. I'm a team lead in Copo, and I work on the website, which allows people to actually buy the books that we can sell. The book that I'd particularly like to recommend today is Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. Uh, it was published in 1990, and it's a very timely recommendation, I think, because it's going to be coming to the big or small screen near you next year. Uh, so at the moment, Amazon and BBC are engaged in a co-production of the book. And is this one of those books where you you want to get the uh, you want to get your reading done before you see it on screen. I think it probably is. There is a huge amount of humour in the book uh, that nobody can be quite sure of how it's going to translate. And one of the glorious things about reading a book is you get to put your own images of the characters in place. And I think it's a lot harder to do that once you've seen somebody else play the people that you're reading about. So give me just a couple of sentences on the on the plot for people who haven't heard about this story before. So the basic plot is it is the end of days. It's Armageddon uh, and it's all going to kick off in about one week. And the story is about a demon and an angel who are working together frantically to try and prevent the end of the world. But it's also about what happens when the person who is destined to bring about the end of the world grows up in complete ignorance of the fact that this is going to happen. It's what happens when a thoroughly human person is put in the middle of heaven and hell. What I love about it is that it brings, it has angels, it has demons, it has the horsemen of the apocalypse. Like, it's got everything that a proper eschatological tale should have as set in England in modern day. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it even gives you the star sign of the earth. <laughs> it's a co-written. And so we have Terry Pratchett on one side. We have Neil Gaiman on the other. How does that combination work? I think it works brilliantly. Uh, they're both, uh, if you read any of their other books, uh, they're both very fond of putting in references to other things from all over the place uh, through the entire history of the planet and it's ramped up to the max uh, with this particular book there are footnotes everywhere uh, and it really is uh, next to impossible to tell who has written which particular part of the book uh, I have seen reported that even the authors themselves are no longer quite sure about who did what Who should be reading this book if they haven't had a chance to pick it up already? Anybody who likes humour, anybody who likes horror movies from the 1970s, anybody who likes classic English humour like uh, the P.G. Woodhouse books or the just William books, uh, anybody who's read... 
George Orwell, for example. I mean, there are so many references and allusions that are thrown around. And when it comes right down to it, anybody who likes a really side-splittingly funny book will just adore this, I think. You're absolutely right. It's certainly not a novel just for people who like speculative fiction or who happen to like fantasy or science fiction. It crosses a lot of boundaries. It has a ton of humor in it. And you can come at it from a lot of different directions and a lot of different authors right through your library. So it's it's one of those good universal gifts for people who like fiction, have a bit of uh, you know, a bit of humor in them, or maybe need some, and also works, I think, quite well as as an introduction to young adults to the works of both Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. I think that's absolutely right. It's a perfect book for teenagers, uh, especially ones who are trying to work out exactly what are the big questions that they'd like to answer are. Uh, Seeing those type of things uh, approached with a bit of humor, I think, is no bad thing. So that's Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Uh, Mike McHugh, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Thank you very much. And then just two additions I'll make to Mike McHugh's recommendation. Good Omens has a couple of fantastic audiobook versions. There's a full-text version, and then there's also a BBC radio play version as well. Both of them are amazing. Neil Gaiman has, I think, one of the most impressive collections of audiobooks attached to his writing. And so Mike's other recommendation was, if if you're rolling off Good Omens and want to keep going, start with A Nancy Boys by Neil Gaiman, and uh, the audiobook for that is perfect as well. My name is Tracy Nesdely, and I am the head of communications here at Kobo, and the book I would like to recommend is Warlight by Michael Ondaatje. And so of all of the Michael Ondaatje books, and there are many, and they're all fantastic, what is it about this one especially that calls out to you? I loved The English Patient and, in fact, read it two or three times and can't actually tell you what happens in it. It's one of those books where just the beauty of the language flows over you and the story itself is very abstract. This book has that same beautiful language, but the story is so immersive and compelling, you just cannot put it down. And so give me just a little bit of what that story is. Okay, so Warlight, as the title might suggest, is um, set in wartime or just after the Second World War. And it's a story of two children left behind by their parents. The parents kind of take off for some mysterious purpose um, to Hong Kong. Let me read you the first sentence. In 1945, our parents went away and left us in the care of two men who may have been criminals. That kind That's of te- a great first line. Yeah, it kind of tells you how you're going to dive right in. So the children are left in the care of a strange man named the Moth and another, the Darter. And they kind of decide, you know what, school's not quite what we want to do. And they go to the school of hard knocks. They start living on the street a little bit, um, working with these possibly criminals. So that's the first part of the book. It takes place in um, post-war London when things are kind of spooky and dark and mysterious and all kinds of things are going on. The second half of the book picks up when Nathaniel, the protagonist, is older, and he's trying to piece together what exactly his past is. And as you say, it's illuminated by Ondaatje's language. And so... 
the qualities that you loved in the English patient, did those come through in Warlight as well? Absolutely. It's just it's just so beautiful to be in the hands of a writer who can conjure images so beautifully. You know, the the father is described as smoke like. There's you know, he, he describes scenes and and you feel like you were walking in London after the war when there's rubble where there used to be a home and there's somebody running off into an alley somewhere to do something, all kinds of things. And people are, are, are living in a way that, in a way, is kind of magical. So Nathaniel meets a woman. He falls kind of in love with her because she's got a beautiful green ribbon in her hair. And they hang We've out. all done that. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> Never fell in love with a ribbon in my life. Um, the, and they, they find themselves entertaining themselves, as young people do, in homes that have been abandoned. So all kinds of things go on. It's just, it's just a, wonderful, a wonderful read. So with the holidays coming up, who do you give this book to? Well, I think this book would serve a lot of, a lot of different people on the holiday gift list. So anybody who just loves a good story, you know, those kind of big, juicy narratives. Anyone who's kind of drawn to books about or set during the war. People who like mysteries, because there's a certain amount of mystery in this, um, not the least of which is, who is my mother? Which is kind of a mystery we all grapple with at some time or other. And then it would appeal to anybody who likes those kinds of family stories, you know, generational kind of tales. For people who have never read a Michael Ondaatje work before, are there other authors that would lead you into him or um, kind of bridges that people can take to get there? What I would say is if you've never read Ondaatje and you have a mind to, this is a very, very good first stop because it's, it's a true narrative. As I say, not quite so abstract and artful as some of his other books are. I think if you love Kate Atkinson, for example, any of her books, Life After Life, A God in Ruins especially, if you like... Let me try and think of someone else. Like, like if, if you find, as I say, if you find, if you liked all the light we cannot see, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of evocative, provocative kind of wartime books, uh, you, you will love this. And I think you encapsulated it very well at the beginning. Ondaatje comes from this, I don't know if it's solely a Canadian tradition of poets who become novelists, but he's certainly one where the poetry stays, uh, that, that, that love of the perfectly turned phrase, the the love of stringing language together comes through even while he's writing a propulsive story. And that is the, the magic of him to me as an author. I agree with you. That is the magic of him. And you're right. Many, many authors start as first poets and then short story writers and then and then they write their novels. He's always a poet and it's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. My name is uh, Trevor Hunter, and I'm Kobo's Chief Technology Officer. The book I'm going to recommend is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Tell us about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. What is it about this book that makes it something you believe that people should read? For me, this book was um, just an exercise in absurdity. Every single paragraph is an exercise of the author trying to outwit the reader. There's so many different quotes that just make you look twice at the paragraph. And honestly, um, from the 
an amazing adventures that go from Earth being destroyed to all across the universe. And just to realize how absurd some of the concepts are just made me laugh out loud. And for people that haven't uh, haven't encountered the book before, give us just a, a, a brief caption of, uh, of what the book's about. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is about a perfectly ordinary guy that um, is sitting in his house, having a cup of tea, his house gets destroyed. Later during that day, the Earth also gets destroyed, and he gets introduced for the first time to what the universe is really like. All the different planets, all the different races, all the different adventures that uh, are involved. But his home planet, Earth, has been destroyed, apparently to make room for a hyperspace bypass. So you can imagine some of the adventures that uh, pursue from that. Just an ordinary person, totally unprepared, in, in his robe with nothing but a towel, exploring the universe. And there's so many other stories and quotes that have come from that that you probably are familiar with if you're not familiar with the, the book itself. The answer to life, the universe, and everything being the number 42. Or the phrase, don't panic, which has appeared on Tesla's uh, rocket man uh, car that got shot into space recently. Um, all of those uh, stem from this particular book. Who would you recommend reads uh, this series? I think anybody who's got a passing appreciation for some British humor, where mocking ourselves and making fun of the human race is, uh, is something that uh, might like uh, you might like. I think that's something that's really important. Somebody who likes to pay attention to what they're reading, because like I said, this is a book that plays tricks on you. It's uh, you'll, you'll have to double back and reread the paragraph to make sure that's what the author actually said in, in your mind. I think uh, anybody who's getting into any type of comedy or science fiction, this is the cult classic uh, for me to start with. It's opened up a gateway to lots of other books that have really thoroughly enjoyed, especially those by Terry Pratchett or Neil Gaiman. Fantastic. And it's a great book for Doctor Who fans. It's a great book for Monty Python fans. As you say, anybody who's tapped into that that particular kind of British absurdity, but set in space and an Englishman abroad on spaceships is going to love this book. Absolutely. And you mentioned some of those other things like uh, Monty Python and uh, Doctor Who. This, um, like some of those, have, has started actually as a radio series um, back in the the early 60s and 70s and has progressed to be in a published book and a, a cult classic much like uh, Doctor Who or uh, Monty Python. The audiobook side of this um, is just as funny and just as good a performance as the, um, as the written word and it's a, it's a fantastic uh, listen and entertainment as well. Similar to some of the other books that we've been talking about, this is one that has a couple of different audiobook treatments. So there are the original BBC radio plays that were fantastic and have a number of actors who've, you know, who've since shown up on the cultural radar. There are the more full-text versions as well, where you get uh, sort of chapter and verse of the whole thing, and they're all amazing. I also first encountered this as the radio plays and listened to them kind of one episode at a time every morning, then came to the books later, and, uh, and they're just fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many different varieties. I don't think there's any other 
book that you can get a trilogy of four either. So. <laughs> That's true. Yes, it's uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is only the first. You know, Restaurant at the End of the Universe being second. Life, the Universe, and Everything being third. And then I think the fourth is So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, is it not? Yes, that's the, that's correct. Excellent. And you can get them all as one uh, big bundle, or you can uh, pick them up one at a time as well. Trevor, thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Michael. Hi, my name is Christina Mendez. I'm the CRM Marketing Manager here at Copo, which means I do our email marketing, and I also do marketing for a lot of our individual book titles. You have another recommendation in the in the romance category, but we've brought you back because you had a fiction title that you just couldn't let go. Mm-hmm. I have a fantasy series that if I could, if I didn't work at Kobo, my job would be handing this book out on the street to people just to get them to start reading it. It's called, well, the overall trilogy is called The Inheritance Trilogy by N.K. Jemisin, and I recommend getting all three of them at once because you're not going to want to stop in between them. Um, it's this really epic fantasy series that I think is great even for people who don't usually read fantasy. It's a very accessible series. It doesn't take 2,000 pages to make like one single plot point. And it's about this character named, and I will butcher this absolutely because all the names are impossible to pronounce, Yena, who starts off the book on a series to sort of find out how her mother died. Um, and she ends up going to a town called Sky where where her grandfather lives and is sort of like the king of this entire kingdom. Um, And she goes over there thinking she's going to try to find out what happened. But there are other people who have other plots for her. And actually, they announce her as one of the possibilities for the heir to the throne. Because in this world, that's just something that happens. Um, But it's actually a very, like, vicious battle. It's a little bit Games of Throny in that the idea is when she finds out about this, she's immediately a target. She's like, okay, people are for sure going to try to kill me. And now I have to navigate that. And it goes through a bunch of different things. There's gods in this universe, but they've been captured and they're trapped as sort of slaves, essentially, to the people who rule this kingdom. And it just tells this really intricate and interesting story as it goes on and just so incredibly well written. And that kind of fantasy book that, like, I picked it up, I read the first page and was like, oh, no, now I have to read this entire book in one sitting. And that takes, like, 12 hours. Uh, but I couldn't stop. I had to just keep going through, and it was totally worth it. So you should budget a, like a full yeah. weekend. It's maybe something you bring with you on vacation so oh. that you can just roll Absolutely. from book to book. Absolutely. And you need that time, period of time because there are going to be moments where things happen and you have to stop. You have to put the book down. you got to walk away for like five minutes, be like, I'm emotional, and then you need to go back to it. <laughs> but you need that break. Otherwise, you're never going to be able to get through it. Got it. Okay, so you need some emotional reserves as well. You need a big block of time, and apparently you need either the ability to to pronounce fantasy names in your head or the ability to just kind of like roll yeah. right past it. Yeah, you just get to a point where you're like, I've decided that this is how this name is pronounced, and that's just how I'm going to live with it. Got it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. We have brought Nathan Maharaj back because he has another book that he also wants to make sure that people know about, and it is? It's Mad Blood Stirring by Damon Fairless. This is a book that got published early this year. It seems to have fallen dead off the press. Nobody interested in it. It was personally recommended to me by somebody uh, working at his publisher who, who thought uh, thought it would speak to, to my interests, and uh, and this person was absolutely right. Tell us a little bit about it. So it's it's nonfiction. It's a study of, I mean, the subtitle is, is about um, the emotional lives of violent men. But what's interesting is the author doesn't treat violent men as some alien other that we can tut at and tisk tisk at and say, oh, my goodness, what, what, how, how twisted is the human mind sometimes? 
he connects it in his own personal experience. He connects it to his own proclivity for getting into physical altercations. Everything from, you know, the fight at the hockey game to just uh, a confrontation on the sidewalk. And he ties this back to just really essential attributes of of what it is to identify with masculinity. So I found it really easy to relate to myself and by, you know, easy to relate to in that it was highly relatable. It is in no way easy to find yourself so easily relating to uh to these descriptions of of really stressful unpleasant situations that he himself relates to to serial killers, to to men with truly awful violent uh tendencies and histories. One of the ways that this book was described to me is why, when men are in conflict, do they always at some level want to throw down? Like, why is there always that track towards yeah. physical violence? And you may you may decide not to do it. You may decide, you know, that, of course, you're not the kind of person who does do that. But the decision's but upon always, you. But it always sits there. It's there. And yeah. in any confrontation, there is that question of, is this going to turn into a violent conflict? Right, exactly. And that was, and that, that just seemed inescapable. And it was one of those things that haunted me through the whole book and, and made me think about my own choices, uh, about raising my, my two sons, uh, all of it. It was, it was a, it's a fantastic book, criminally underrated. Uh, it needs a, a broader audience. So who should read this book? I will go ahead and say anyone who identifies their gender as male. If it was, your, if it was the gender you were born to, Get into this. Study what it is that, that you that you identify with. Go deep into it. If it is a gender you don't identify with, this is a really interesting way to uh, to find what's going on in there. And 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 again, I, I would say you know if it's a if it's a <laughs> if it sits anywhere in your world, and I think masculinity sits in everyone's world. Anyone who's interested in how emotions drive action, how human beings are, and what might we become, would you consider it an anthropological study or is it more of a meditation on you know masculinity you know in its various sort of in its spectra of benign to toxic yeah i would say he kind of tries to do both jobs okay he's trying to look backwards um but he's very concerned with with what is today so it's very much a contemporary kind of thing. Any anybody who you know reads the New Yorker to stay up on things, so that they're the most interesting person at the dinner party. This is a great book to read. Partly, it's also a great book to read because no one else at the dinner party has read it. I guarantee you. <laughs> so it is. It is truly a hidden, undiscovered gem. Absolutely, of an undiscovered gem in nonfiction. Excellent. Thank you so much. Anytime. So there you have it. That's this season's Kobo and Conversations gift guide, a series of book recommendations that have completely crossed the spectrum of categories from fiction and science fiction, fantasy, romance, nonfiction, business books, uh, a little bit of absolutely everything. I've enjoyed this so much, unlocking the book recommendation expertise of the people inside the company. We're certainly going to do this again. I think you're going to hear more book picks on a regular basis as a part of the Kobo and Conversations podcast. And I hope that you found some of this useful as you go through the sometimes agonizing process of figuring out what do you get for that person with shelves already full of books or an e-reader already full of books. Good luck, and we'll see you soon. That's it for this episode of Kobo and Conversation podcast about books and the authors who write them. To discover the books you just heard about, or to follow us, 
please visit www.kobo.com conversation. This podcast is produced at the Kobo Audiobook Studios here in Liberty Village in Toronto, Ontario, Canada.